Evil 1-1, we have a visual on your position. We have enemy movement 300 meters to your south. Enemy troops in the open. Small arms and RPGs, you are clear to engage. Roger, Evil CP, we are TIC. I say again, we are troops in contact, requesting air support. Stand by for call for fire. Solid copy. Troops in contact. Be advised, air is red at this time. Repeat, air is a no-go. You're on your own. Dig in and give them hell. Give them hell. Give them hell. Welcome to the Dogs of War. Hosted by Stephen Houston. What is up? Dogs of War podcast fans and listeners. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Alpine Arms. Alpine Arms is a veteran-owned and operated gun store and training source located in Eagle, Colorado. They specialize in training opportunities from pistol, rifle, night vision, tactical medicine, long range, and they offer the Colorado experience while doing so. All of their instructors come from the military special operations community and law enforcement special units. On the retail side, they sell products from Aero Precision, Arsenal Democracy, B.E. Myers, Elbit Systems of America, Nighthawk Custom, Staccato, Ops Corps, Vortex, and Zero Tolerance. Let us invest in yourself. Alpine Arms can be found at 50 Chambers Ave in Eagle, Colorado, or online at alpinearms.com. Podcast is also brought to you by Relentless Tactical. Relentless Tactical makes all kinds of firearms accessories from holsters to hoodies, but what they are really known for is their concealed carry belt line. Personally, I I rock the ultimate concealed carry leather gun belt. They sent me two of them. I gave one to my stepdad who loves it. I absolutely love mine, and uh, it's a one and a half inch, 14 ounce premium full grain U.S. leather badass, and they offer a lifetime warranty. Check them out at RelentlessTactical.com and let them know Dogs of War sent you. Our newest sponsor is Hardhead Veterans, also known as HHV. HHV makes ballistic helmets and accessories and is a veteran-owned and operated company. Check out their Gen 2 ATE ballistic helmet. It's a level 3 ballistic rated super high-cut helmet. I've worn a bunch of different helmets and tried different gear uh, you know, at different uh, seminars and, and stuff like that. And, and honestly, it's the most comfortable helmet I've, I've worn in that price range. And, um, you know, it's right around 400 bucks. Probably it's gone up a little bit now with, with the craziness that's going on, but it's the best value on the market. They also have a level four up armor plate system that will make your helmet rifle fire rated. Use the code dogs of war for a 10% discount at checkout. All right. We, uh, also I'm going to give a plug to the, uh, Georgia police canine foundation. The Georgia Police Canine Foundation is a nonprofit organization that assists active and retired law enforcement canines. They provide protective equipment to canines like heat alarms, ballistic vests, training equipment, and assist retired canines with medical costs. They also provide trainings to help canine teams. You can learn more about how to help them on their social media platform and their website, GeorgiaPoliceCanineFoundation.org. So that is G P K. The number nine F dot org. Please check them out. They were gracious enough to let me and my non police dog attend uh, their seminar and got a bunch of training in and uh, met a bunch of really good people. So thank you, Kyle. Kyle's the president, Kyle Briley. 
And they do a lot of good stuff, man. So check them out. We're going to be plugging them on the podcast for a while. And uh, yeah, so check them out. If you want to donate, donate. Uh, they do a lot of really good stuff. All right. Now that we're through that, uh, I'd like to ask everybody that's listening to please take two seconds and and leave us a rating and a review um, an Apple iTunes or podcasts or on Spotify or any of the platforms. But really, the most important one is Apple. You know, it costs money to to do this podcast, and and um, I really enjoy doing it, and I want to keep doing it, and uh, getting more listeners, and and spreading the word is is the way to do that. So please take two seconds, click the stars, and just even if it's one word, just leave us a review. It really helps keep things going over here. As you guys have noticed, it's been a few months since uh, I've released an episode. Um, for clarity, I lost my job for the vaccine mandates back in October town manager decided to let us know via email, give us 10 days notice um, or that we were going to be terminated. So I basically lost my career and uh, you know, I've been working dogs for uh, you know a while and I have several pet clients that I work with and you know, I wasn't ready to be full-time dog trainer, Steve, but as circumstances would have it, you know, some people are clowns and, uh, you know, obviously we all know, you know, that most of this was bullshit and over overreaching. So, um, yeah, I, uh, took a couple few months to reflect and, and try and pull myself out of the dark hole that I, that I found myself in because I, you know, I lost my career and society and family attaches so much value on a, on a bullshit nine to five job. And, you know, mentally that's hard to, hard to get through, but I'm through it and I uh, took a couple cross country trips and did some dog training with some wonderful folks. And, uh, you know, I want to pursue my passion with working dogs. So that's, that's what I'm going to focus on. I hope all of you are well. And, uh, if anybody, you know, lost their job or, you know, found themselves in the same situation or f were, were forced to get vaccinated, man, I, I truly feel for you. I think we're going to look back on this and, uh, you know, I'm looking at it as a positive, but you know, we all know it's bullshit. So enough with that. This was my first podcast in a while. We had some technical issues and um, I was a little rusty. It's hard. It's hard, man. Take some time off. It's definitely a perishable skill for sure. So I'm, I'm definitely going to do a repeat episode of this and kind of follow my format. I didn't really follow my format. And um, this guest is, you know, a legend in the canine world, just like my previous one, Mr. Howard Young. And um, I'm just out of my depth talking to these guys on certain subjects. So next time I'm going to follow my format and, and really dig in because there's so much here that I didn't unpack. And, uh, you know, Rich has a, has a wonderful story and background and uh, we barely even scratched the surface. But anyways, let's get started. So my guest today is a 20-year veteran of law enforcement. He served as a canine officer, detective, police instructor, and a SWAT member. He received his bachelor's in criminal justice in 2007 and his master's degree in 2012. He has a wide array of canine experience, and he has served military special operations groups, police departments, military contracts, and has trained over 6,000 pet dogs and uh, I'm sure a ton of police dogs over the last 20 years. Currently, he's the owner-operator of the Working Dog Depot in Louisville, Kentucky, where they specialize in raising and training German Shepherds as well as Labradors. In his spare time, he can be found spending time with his family and pursuing his love of Jesus and dogs. Please give it up 
for the great and powerful Rich Harden. How are we doing today, Mr. Rich Harden? How are you? I'm doing well, Stephen. Good, good to talk to you again. Yeah, it was. Uh, for those who may not know, I just met Rich uh, recently at a seminar for uh, dog training, and specifically in the police dog world. And we had uh, we shared some good bourbon and uh, exchanged numbers. And he's kind of interested in starting his own podcast as well. So I invited him on onto mine to kind of see how the process works and uh, share some, uh, you know, stories and knowledge and insight in the police and uh, dog training world. So thanks for, thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm very honored to be here. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk. Absolutely. So I kind of, before we dive into anything, I kind of do a quick little, uh, little lightning type round of questions. So I'm going to just ask you a random couple random questions and uh, just try and give a, Quick answer, if you can. Okay. What's the coolest thing somebody could have in their backyard? A hot tub. I agree with that. Absolutely. All right. Um, favorite destination for a family vacation anywhere in the world? No dogs. You know, Key West. Key West. Key West, Florida. Awesome. And if you are a person who carries a, a pistol what's your preferred caliber and um, type of handgun uh, right now it's nine millimeter uh, everyday carries a p365x nice I, awesome i i we had the regular 365 when i got mine and the xl had come out a little bit after but so i have the smaller one but i do like the size and the flat trigger and a little bit of added accuracy with a little longer barrel and frame but all right well, call that good so why don't you just give everybody some background uh, on who you are and um, your history uh, in law enforcement and dogs and kind of just the broad strokes. And then we'll, we can kind of dive into some other local parts of that as well afterwards. Okay. Yeah. Uh, about 21, 22 years of law enforcement, all in the state of Kentucky. Finished up with the Louisville Metro Police in uh, 2011, 2010, 2011. Been doing dogs. Uh, first with the Nelson County Police Department way back in 95, 96. That's where I got my first taste of dogs and uh, been training dogs ever since. I've always had a small dog training company, even while I was on the police department. And uh, I, I just never stopped. It just it, something that it engrossed me and kind of consumed me trying to figure out how to uh, better train them and better communicate with them. And it's, I've just tried to always be a student of my profession. I've just never stopped working. Yeah, right. So when you started on the police department and the first time did you go straight into a canine program was there a little bit of a you know like a patrol phase on that yeah it was a patrol phase you know most places you have to work on the street i know uh my last agency that louisville metro you know it, you, you got to be on the road for three years before you can apply to any specialized unit gives you that experience as a police officer it was the same i'd been a police officer for a couple of years and tried to the, the county didn't have a dog at all and i helped uh, a good friend of mine helped me get a dog, and we trained him, and went and got him certified. And like I said, just never looked back; just kept just kept on going. Wow, that's awesome! Yeah, I, I you know, it was a big eye opener being down there and and seeing all the different um, units and kind of getting a chance to pick everybody's brains. And you know, it's uh, I didn't realize how you know how much it's changed. My grandfather was a police officer, and I mean, they had dogs that would that would track people, and like back in the you know back in the earlier days to, to seeing what they are possible of now on that little small scale that I saw. I mean, it was absolutely mind blowing. Some of the stuff that 
dogs can do. And, and specifically on the detection side, I mean, that, that to me, you know, I'm young, I don't have a lot of experience. So from a, a person in your perspective and, and with your experience, like when, when did it really like start to get super high speed and, and, and uh, I guess more science-based, when did you start seeing that change? Was it while you were still actively, uh, you know, working a dog on the street? Was it more in towards the later portion of that? No, it, it's really been more to the later end of, of dog training period. You know, they, people talk about science, but they just really call it different things. You know, back in the day, there was the old yank and crank method, I guess, the colder method that everybody used to, to, to train obedience. But, you know, now it's more for, on our end, it's more of a balanced method. You know, you have to teach a dog what you want them to do, build a relationship with the dog. And, and then, you know, as you move through, that's when you add distractions and corrections. There's different ideologies about correcting for like detection problems and things like that. So you not, you have to know the dog is not in odor or on a, on a, a masking odor before you would even want to begin to do any type of corrections. But, you know, for us, I get, we and me and Howard, I know you talked to Howard a couple of times. We, we talk about this at length and a couple of other dog trainers. I know, you know, there's really nothing new under the sun, right? Right. Uh, they're, they're calling it different things, but it's really just nice packages and, you know, and good for them for marketing different things in different ways. And, and, and getting people to revisit different terminologies, but it's really all still the same. That's all, you know, cause I, I was on like a podcast fest on the drive back cause it was a couple day drive. And, you know, I, I, I can ex- see exactly what you're saying about people putting, you know, it, their own branding on it and doing stuff, but the concepts are still really the same, but you know, the, the, the method of delivery might be changed or the term, you know, the terminology. What- sure. Some, I mean, some of these, some of these guys have wonderful timing. If you watch some of their videos or watch, watch them, you know, like we got to watch a bunch of great trainers work this past week, you know, a couple weeks ago and their, their timing is impeccable. And that, that doesn't come by taking one class or by repping a dog. It, it comes with years of experience. Right. And, you know, once you have that down, then you're, when you have great timing, and timing is very difficult to teach. Once you have that delivery down, then things go much smoother for you as a trainer. Do you do any kind of exercises specifically with new handlers or new trainers uh, to work on that timing? Like I, I see it like with my wife. My wife is not a, a dog person at all, she, but she can like leash up my dog and walk him if, you know. But I, like I can see what you're saying. Like it's like because I get frustrated. But, like I'm like, don't like the timing it's just like it's hard to explain like her rewarding at the wrong time and he's offering a, a different behavior at that point or doing something you don't want and she's reinforcing the negative you know behaviors but sorry to step on you there no no you're exactly right it, it takes it takes work with a dog to understand once especially if you look at detection detection is more of a subtle thing you know you have to have great timing you have to understand and read your dog when it's in odor and know that its sniffing pattern has changed or it's increased or it's tail wag, whatever little tail the dog gives you, the head whip back to odor. And then, you know, then, of course, when you're you know, teaching new police officers, I think that's why a lot of guys have really come back, you know, switch back to the delivery back at the hand of the trainer. Yes. You know, releasing the dog from odor and getting it because the dog catches people anyway because everybody, the dog understands over time where the reward comes from. Right. So obedience to odor, you can make them sit there and stare at the odor. And that's nothing more than obedience. They've already gave the indication and they understand, you know, you understand as a handler or a trainer that the dog is already in odor and is indicating whether it locks up or freezes. Some people want the dog to sit and stare. 
again, it just becomes obedience. Uh, you can release the dog back to odor or, you know, whatever you, you know, desire, but it's all timing. Because once you're caught from behind, then the dog's always looking back to you for the payment anyway. Right. They're not stupid. They get it. Yeah, I actually literally just read an article like probably a half hour, hour ago. I, I can't remember the gentleman's name, but I believe his operation is called Tar Heel Canine. He's in somewhere in North Carolina. And um, uh-huh. he was Jerry, Jerry Bradshaw. Yes. Yep. That was exactly who it was. Yep. Yeah. He was it, he, I was reading it in depth and, and I'm just getting into the, like I'm super curious and I want to learn how to do odor work with my dog. Like I, I wish I would have had more time over at that station. I didn't even get over there once, honestly, but you know, it's just hard to, there's so many different ways to skin a cat and, and you know, it's just like an overload of information on the internet. And, and it's, you know, I don't know. I kind of just wish I could learn from like a, like a, you know, somebody in person instead of trying to figure this stuff out on the internet or go to seminars, you know, it's kind of hard. Well, and you know, and that's how I learned. We went to seminars and, you know, we'd go back and practice. I, I was very fortunate. My very good friend was a, is a phenomenal dog trainer. And, you know, and he, he's helped me over the years with that very thing. And then when I had an opportunity to work full time in that endeavor, that I just locked myself in a box room and, and taught myself how to do it. And then I would, back in the day, we had to set up that big video camera to videotape ourselves. You know, now you can do it with the phone. And I would just, we just go back and play that video over and over again and look where you're, have a tight leash or where you're, getting in the process, you know, for us, there's a recipe for detection and it's odor, response, reward. And anything that really goes against those, that, that concept, you're, you're putting something in the training you don't need. Uh, we always want to be a part of the, of the uh, equation and that causes problems for the dog. And then they begin to depend on you and look back to you automatically. Well, is it here? And then you'll help people talking to dogs. Well, show me where it's at. Show, well, be quiet and let the dog tell you where it's at. You just play dumb at the other end of the leash because if the dog knows odor, he's going to give you the response you're looking for sooner or later. You just have to wait him out. Uh, but if you start talking to him or becoming part of the process, then the dog is dependent on you, and then you have a problem. And it, it happens at seminars and uh, training events because people don't want their dogs to fail, you know, because they're always, you know, looking at, you know, it's part of its ego. It, you know, you don't want your dog to fail or you don't want someone to talk bad about you or whatever. And you see it time and time again. Uh, but you know, really there's nobody that's any better than anybody else there. Just work your dog and have fun. And it usually works out. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. I wanted to ask you one, just kind of before we move away from your background and stuff like that, um, into more of the, the the detection questions that I want to get into and have, um, could you got any cool canine stories from when you were walking a beat that you care to share maybe one or two short ones that were funny or, you know, awesome finds and something cool like that. Well, I think my, my favorite find of all time was with my, my narcotics dog I had named Max. And we got called out to help the state police. Uh, they got in behind a vehicle, was going to do a traffic stop, and they the, the guy tossed something out the window. Uh, he could he didn't couldn't tell what it was. It was dark. Uh, so he had him pulled over. And when I get there, he, he, there's a median of the between the parking lot and the road. It's probably, oh, I don't know, a couple hundred feet wide, maybe, you know, two to 300 feet long. And he says, he threw something out here and it's in this median. So I, I get Max downwind and I put, I put him uh, into the uh, odor with the wind blowing in his face. So anyway, he goes right out, goes probably 30, 40 feet into the, into the grass and sets down and buries his nose on the grass. And, and in, in the grass 
is a little roach, marijuana roach. The guy had tossed out the window. Uh, it was probably the as small as my uh, little fingernail. Oh and that God. gave the police officer probable cause to get in the car where he found Afakia Coke, you know, several hundred different types of pills. So it turned out to be a big bust to stop him finding that little bitty roach that was tossed out the window. Wow. Wow, yeah, awesome. it was actually a lot of it was a lot of fun to watch. Any live bite stories on him? No, no, he was a lab. He was a lab. He's not biting anybody with biscuits. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, um, I just kind of want to pick your brain a little bit. I know a lot of people have the same questions that I do, and and um, you're you know you're the kind of the guru on this, and I'm completely new to doing any any kind of nose work other than stomping a scent pad into grass. Uh, for Schutzen tracking and, and putting hot dogs and and steps and you know a ninety degree turn here and there, but that's like the gist of it. Okay, so if a person has a dog or um, like me, I want to do tracking uh, on different surfaces, and I also want to do odor stuff. Do, is it more important to a, to build hunt drive first, or to do this first, or this way? What uh, what would your advice be to that? Well, you know, first of all, you have to pick the right dog. <clears throat> you know, all all dogs can obviously sniff, but are they motivated to do what you want them to do for a reward system? Are they motivated by food? Are they motivated by a toy? Uh, so me personally, I like, you know, toy drive. And you said about developing hunt drive, you know, I, I think you can enhance different drives, but if the drive isn't there, you're not going to make it happen. Right. So, you know, we've been lucky to, to be around some really great dog trainers over the years and learn uh, different testing procedures where we run a dog through a battery of tests to look at hunt, possession, perseverance, you know, will it, if you put the ball on the other side of the fence, will it, will it keep trying to get through the fence to get the ball? Will it not give up? You know, if you throw the ball in high grass and spin the dog backwards and then send the dog into the tall grass, will he keep hunting incessantly without looking for you or, or not coming back? Because to me, it's not important once I throw the toy out there, whether he finds it or not, that's going to seem quick. You know, after it goes on for a little bit, I'll throw another ball in there if I have to, to give him, you know, some, some, some rewards. But I just don't want to see him quit. Right. And then if that's part of the process and the testing process, then, you know, we look at, you know, how is he around other animals or people, you know, especially if you're going to live with this dog, you know, some, some agencies have a kennel so they can live with certain behaviors that other people that are going to live with their dog at home may not be able to live with. Right. Absolutely. You know, so can next, can I live with that guy? You know, from there, it's just putting up, putting your methodology in process once they pass those certain criteria. Or whatever you're going to do, whether it be food or, uh, you know, the, the BSD system or then the, the tubes they use now, the wall, you know, whatever. There's all kinds of different things to, to work on. You know, people print puppies with rags under their bowls with odor, you know. So it's uh, a good way to start young dogs. Right. And I, I remember asking you that uh, when we were at the down in Georgia there. I got back. My parents have a pretty big backyard and I spent a few days with them just cause just to break up the trip and I haven't seen them in a while. So it kind of worked out. And, uh, yeah, I would just, I started, you know, small, grab the, uh, my dog's collar and throw his ball, wait, wait for the ball to stop moving and then let him go. And I mean, he was like super intense about it. Like he really enjoyed it. And he, I, I just stretched that out further and further and further and then got him into the woods and kind of like uh, uh, accidentally, I didn't realize there was like briar patches and stuff in there, but he found his ball. And um, yeah, it's, it's really cool just to see that in person. You know, uh, when you're developing these dogs, yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's a 
it's a pretty unique topic. And when you were, you know, when you first got into the canine program, did you have an interest in, in, you know, like, Hey, I just like uh, some of the guys that I talked to, uh, they just want to work the dog and, and as their job, you know, and, and then go home. When, when did it develop with you? Like, Hey, this is something, you know, that I want to, I want to do, like, I want to learn the other side of this and actually pursue both sides of that. Well, for me, I've always been a type of person that once I start something, I want to be good at it. I don't want to just be, I don't want to have just some basic knowledge. I want to be someone that's very proficient. I'm, I love education and learning. And I want to make sure that I become a student of whatever profession I'm doing at the time. So after I got my first dog, I realized very quickly I didn't know anything. Because, you know, in the dog world, especially as a trainer, we've, I've battled this and other trainers. We've had these conversations that you, you battle this with police officers and military guys because everybody's owned a dog. And they all have some kind of concept of training that dog to sit or, or do certain behaviors. So you're always battling <laughs> someone thinking they know about what you're getting ready to do. And, you know, I didn't really consider myself a trainer until I had about 300, 400 dogs under my belt because it gave me a wide variety of different dogs that I'd seen different methodologies to use because I had some place to go in my toolbox when, when that norm. So I have a process of training, but this dog's not fitting in that cookie cutter system. Right. You gotta have, a, you gotta have something else in your toolbox to say, Hey, well, we need to, we need to, let this dog see this via a different picture so he can learn better, you know, so he can pick it up quicker because uh, there's, there's a disconnect. Right. And so just like when I became a handler of a dog, I was a handler of a dog. I wasn't a dog trainer. I was a decent handler. You know, I got to go to good schools and the department I worked for sent me to any seminar or any training that I wanted to go to, Wow. Uh, which was well, lucky for me. I, not, most place, places don't do that for their guys, Yeah. but they did. And I was very fortunate to, to, just take in whatever I could. And I went to seminars and I saw things. I was like, I don't like that. And I saw things that I really liked. I saw trainers. I really liked. I saw trainers. I didn't, didn't like dislike, but I didn't really care for their methodologies. And, but I always learned something from everyone that ever stood in front of me. And so I've all over the last 25 years, I've just, I've kept those things with me. And sometimes even people that I didn't agree with that worked for a certain dog that I was having an issue with. Right. So I've always tried to keep an open mind and take, take in those concepts and try to, put them in my toolbox just to be a better trainer. Cause you just have a, you know, there's, I've met way better trainers than I'll ever be. Uh, the difference with, with me is that I've just seen a lot of dogs. Been right. blessed to see lots of dogs. So and I just have a perspective of where to start when some folks don't have that perspective. Yeah. That's, and it only, it only gets that way when it becomes problematic, when you see an issue, you know? Right. Yeah. And I mean, that's, and just... if you've seen it, you got a baseline to start with. Yeah. And, and same thing with the dogs, if, if they've seen this picture before, you know, but that's a, that's a only comes with age and reps, man, and uh, experience and, and seeing a bunch of dogs and, you know, it's uh that's awesome. I uh, heard somebody talking about, uh, I can't remember the name. I think they called it hit tracking, something like that. Hydration, something intensified. Um, are you familiar with that? And if so, could you explain that and just uh, lightly touch on that are you talking about putting a water trail across the concrete yes, yes, or asphalt yes yeah, yeah. I've, I've used it a few times as far as like when i when dogs when you're changing surfaces mm -hmm. like you start with grass or you go to gravel or dirt and then when i go across the sidewalk you put a little vapor trail across there helps the odor stay there a little longer and the dog to pick it up a little quicker yeah, yeah. 
gotcha. good little uh, little method. That's what I've used it for. People have, I know track, people that run tracks that use much longer distances, but I usually do it for switching surfaces to begin on. And then I like to, you know, especially we were in an industrial complex where the wind is always blowing up against the building. So your track might be, you know, far to the right of where you are because of the wind and how it blows against the building. Mm-hmm. So using something like that keeps the odor closer to where the, the person actually ran. Wow. That's pretty, that's like, what I heard that I was like, uh, it was such an interesting, the way that the guy broke it down, it kind of acts like a, like a sponge or like a talc, like, like, like a wind checker type, but for scent, that's what it does. And man, it was just like, kind of, I don't know, it's so simple, but it's like the, the concept of it, uh, super interesting to me, but it, 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 it's very interesting. It's, you know, you have to look at odor, like a, they call it like a scent cone, right? So odor is that it's source and the longer it set the wider it gets and you know obviously it's not as strong of an odor right starts to dissipate as it goes out well water or grass something that just like a a dew on the on the grass that keeps that odor closer and doesn't spread it out so sometimes it might be harder to find but once they find it it stays a little closer to where they were and it's just amazing how powerful their nose is you know and i'm kind of stepping on my own tongue here i can't can't tell if you can tell trying to think of cool questions to ask about the nose work but i'm just so completely ignorant to it <laughs> you know what i mean and well uh, it's, a, it's a lot of fun i've always enjoyed doing scent work you know the bite work's a lot of fun don't get me wrong it, yeah everybody it does really that. is but it's well it, they do everybody does that but not everybody's really good at detection right and most people especially small agencies they're not out biting a lot of people you know unless you you know up in ohio or some of these places that get a lot of bites or large departments, you know, the, let's face it, these dogs aren't out here biting a bunch of people. They're doing more detection than they are bite work. Right. right. So being proficient at that is, is very useful for agencies when you can bring in money, make cases. Well, in, in like our, our area, we don't like the local law enforcement agencies don't have dogs and they definitely don't have dogs that bite, you know, and that, that seems to be kind of popping up in a lot of different places. Like they're getting rid of their dogs. And I mean, at least you know, if being able to teach nose work to a dog only that won't bite, you know, seems like a pretty good skill to have. Absolutely. I mean, I, I, I would always, you know, if I was the chief of a police department somewhere, we would have, we'd have dogs that find, find odor for sure. Yeah. 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 That's it. That's your only job. What's, uh, you know, give us a tracking story from, uh, you know, somewhere that, you know, something that sticks out in your mind, the longest track that the dog did or, the, you know, something that was super difficult, but the, the animal still performed and caught the guy. Something just. Well, it, this did not end in a catch, but it was probably the most impressive track I've ever seen. A young man had been stabbed and this wasn't even my dog. Uh, but the story is, is the watching the dog work that night probably caused me to want to be a canine officer more than anything that I could have done after that. Wow! Because the young man was stabbed in the driveway of his house. Uh, his car. He was he was uh, dating a girl. They were probably just out of high school age. Probably you know nineteen twenty year old kid. And he went out to his car to go home, and his locks had been disabled. Somebody had used something to pry his car locks, and he was stabbed to death in the driveway. And the guy took off on foot and fled. Well, when the dog came out, put him on the scent. And what he did was the dog tracked the guy back out of the house over to a Catholic uh, seminary area, which is very heavily wooded, all the way across that to a hardball road 
the driveway, hit the asphalt and started tracking down the asphalt. And we went probably a mile or so. And the guy looked at me and said, you know, man, this guy got in the car. He's gone. And so the, the kid actually come and turned himself in the next day. And he gave the exact same scenario that the dog did. He had parked his car there. And that's where he got in his car and drove away. And the dog continued to track that all wow. the way out to the road. Yeah, wow. it's pretty impressive to watch. Do you, do you uh, incorporate that into your training? Like when, when you have somebody lay a track, like you have them get into a vehicle and the track goes cold so that you can learn the dogs. After watching that, you bet. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was going to ask. So where, why is that important to, to, to the people who may not understand as much, um, you know, about that side of things? Like what's so important about knowing your dog's change of behavior uh, in, in a situation like that? Well, you know, he, he didn't, we didn't know until we tracked so far because the time frame that he really got into a car, you know, he didn't change his scent. He was just on the asphalt. He didn't change what he was doing. He was still tracking like he was when he tracked the grass. Uh, it just, the, there was no way for the dog to be on the road that long and somebody to be in front of us with the amount of police officers that were rolling our way, not to have seen this kid on foot. Right. So that we just summarize, you know, summarize that, hey, he, he got the car and he did. But it just goes to show you what, you know, what, what little sense they need once they associate these guys, you know, on, on the track. How would you describe the way that a dog uh, uses its nose? Like, how does it smell? You know what I'm saying? Like, what, like I've, I've heard it explained different, different ways. What's your take on that? Well, are, are you talking about how you can use it for discrimination? Yeah, like, like I've heard it explained like they see in layers. So, like, if, if it's like, oh, I don't, I don't, I, I smell chili. He's like, I smell hamburger. I smell tomato. I smell this. I've just heard people say that they, they kind of, yeah. Stay. Well, it's, it's, it's due to they have, you know, all these different olfactory senses, like their little chambers in their nose. And so what are they, you know, depending on who you talk to, what is it? 10,000 to a hundred thousand times a greater sense of smell wow. than ours. Right. Wow. Cause they smell parts per million parts per million. So it, these, these, these olfactory chambers break, breaks down the odor. And what you're describing is used to be called, when I started back in the mid nineties was called the stew pot theory. And so when we put all the odor of all of our narcotic odors in a box, and then we would associate the, those odors with the reward system, right. And teach the dog those odors. And then when we, we didn't separate the odors until we went to real hides and they understood that that was one of the odors that they could smell. You didn't have to, you could put them all in the box. So the stew pot method says you, my mom is making, uh, beef stew, I walk in and I smell and I go, oh, hey, that's my mom's beef stew. But the dog goes in and says, oh, that's a carrot, that's a tomato, that's onions, hamburger, broth, so on. So they can break those olfactory senses, break the smell down and send a message to the dog's brain saying what that is. Wow. 10 to 100,000 times more powerful, man. That's crazy. Makes you really think differently yeah, so I mean, about farting right in your dog's face sometimes. <laughs> you know, well, so. you know, you, you, you should never fart for anyone because you're only ingesting someone's butt particle into your nose. <laughs> that's just disgusting. Right. So, well, you know, it, it's funny because that's, it's odor, you know, odor travels like a gas. So if you, if you look at steam or fog, how it gets on the wind and, and, and moves right as the wind blows it. So if I put a high hot in my garage here and the ceiling in the corner, the odor hopefully comes out of the ceiling down the crack of the wall to the floor and then seeks the least path of resistance out my building. Would that be a window or a door? So I was explaining that process this week when we were at the, 
seminar. So, and then after watching a bunch of dogs go through, you know, being the, being the person that's watching, you know, 15, 20 dogs go through this, you can see after five or six dogs, what the odor is actually doing, mm. where each dog is picking up the odor and how the dog works it back to source. What? And that's exactly what happens. So the dogs come in and say, now it's 15 feet, 20 feet from actually source. The dog picks it up, takes the, takes the odor back to source, goes up the wall. He's up on looking up saying, Hey, this is high. I can't get to it. And they sit down and look up at it. Wow. And you can literally watch the physical change of the odor just by watching where the dogs are inside of that and where they're looking and seeing the changes. Yeah. And, and, and then over time, the longer the odor is there, the greater chance the dogs find it, right? Cause there's more odor. So, you know, three hours later, the dogs are not only picking up six feet away, they're picking it up, you know, 30 feet away. Wow. And running it back down. So yeah, it's kind of cool to watch because, you know, we think we know what it's doing, but after watching the dogs work the odor, then we know exactly what odors do. Yeah. So in your opinion, why is it uh, detrimental to a, to a detection dog for the handler to talk to it or help it out uh, when it's in the room or stay close to them? And cause you've seen the progression. You from- can't smell the odor. Right. Right. You need the dog out there working independently for you. So a handler his number one job is to put the dog's nose in productive areas. And if the dog is sniffing along the wall where you want him to sniff or down the side of a car, you need to be quiet and let the dog sniff. If he stops sniffing or gets distracted by something else, it's your job to get him back into where they stop sniffing. So you don't miss some odor in a seam. Because in a car, we don't know where it's coming at. It could be a door seam, trunk seam, could be underneath, you know, coming out of the trunk. You just don't know where it's going to come out. So your job as a handler is to put the dog's nose in a productive area. If, so let's say the dog has a noticeable change of odor. And then you go, oh, show me. Is it there? And you talk the dog into sitting down. Now it's a peanut butter sandwich. Now you got a peanut butter detector dog. Because mm. you don't know what that odor is. And what happens in training, you know, and, and unfortunately for police, especially small agencies, they don't have a big budget to have a bunch of training locations. So these, these guys go out and train in some of the same locations. They put the, the hides in the same places. And so it becomes very repetitive and very easy for the dog. And then when they go do something hard, the dog gets confused and then they become part of the process because they don't want the dog to fail. And now the dog's looking to you to say, Hey, where, where's the, where's it at? Well, I don't know where it's at. Cause you got the nose. I'm just a dummy holding the leash. <laughs> It's so true. That's why it's very detrimental to get the stay out of the processes. I guess if I could give one piece of advice to anybody doing detection, do not make yourself part of the process. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. It seems to be the common consensus. And from when you started years, 20 years ago till today, what's been the biggest change in the detection world that you've seen training wise, or I would say going back to going back to food and uh, delivery at hand. The reward instead of instead of compulsion instead of at or, source yeah at, 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 no. oh, the reward at, i got you i got you yeah, instead of rewarding at source they just you know give the dog a, a release command or market and come back and pay them there i so that's the biggest change i've seen that or training aids where what kind of training aids were you guys using 20 years ago as far as well i mean, it, I mean dr- drugs are drugs right so i mean you've got some new new drugs that have come out but you have to be careful what you imprint like right now there's Especially down there, they didn't want any, you know, marijuana put out. Of course. Because, you know, in some places, marijuana is legal now, and they don't want to paint a, a potential search. Right. So, you know, you got to stay current with, with laws and drugs, you know, what new drugs are coming out. 
But I, I guess my question would have been more, were you guys, did they have the pseudo stuff back then, the scent logics or any of these other companies that are, they didn't have scent logics. They had pseudo, but it wasn't very good pseudo. Right. And did that affect the dogs in any kind of a way? I mean, did you, would you think like with what you have available to you today? I mean, obviously it's going to be better than it was back then, but. Well, it, it, you know, back then I never used any type of pseudo because like I said, it wasn't very good. And we always had a DEA license with the police department. So we always had lab odor. Right. So I never messed much with pseudo back then. But, you know, today we've used a lot of stunt logics. I personally, and this is just my opinion, I haven't seen dogs have a problem with real odor if they were trained in scent logic. Now, I have seen dogs trained in real odor that would not hit scent logic odor. Right. Uh, and that's, that's something for the chemists to talk about other than me. But I have seen that part of it. But most, I've never seen a dog exposed to real odor that was trained on scent logic to really have any type of issue. Yeah, no. I actually just saw some girl and guy, uh, the, the scent logics, I think he's the owner of it. The, he, I think he's an African American gentleman. I, I don't know his name and I'm not going to try to pronounce it, but, uh, did you see that where the girl won first place and her dog was only trained on scent logics and then got on live odor at, at seminars, but it beat all the, the dogs that were on live odor. Not didn't see that, but it, it doesn't surprise me. I mean, again, He's, you know, he's got a really good product as far as I'm concerned. I, I don't get paid, obviously, to say that. I've just, again, it comes from just doing it with a lot of dogs yeah, and just seeing the difference. And, that, you know, that's, as a trainer, that's what I want to see. I want to see, it's like, what, what dog food do I feed in a hunter run kennel? You know, that's the one where the dogs keep on weight, have a smaller stool, don't get diarrhea. You, you know, you want to see the, the larger numbers of dogs be successful, and, and then you know exactly what's, what's working for you. Uh, you know, that's, and that's the problem with some smaller departments. Once again, your only your only experience is with two or three dogs. And if you're on that small department for 20 years, would you see five dogs, six dogs in your in your career? That's just not a lot of dogs and experience to see. Right. That's uh, why you got it, it. It behooves them to get them out to seminars and training so they can see other folks work and and what's working for other people and other methodologies and you know because you just need to be well versed. And what you're doing. Yeah. No, I agree. Let me ask you a stupid question. It's probably, it's a stupid question, but a lot of people I've, my parents have asked, my wife has asked, I don't know the answer to it, but can you train a dog on malt? Like, like have a dog trained on explosive odor? Not that you would do it, but is it possible to train dogs on multiple odors and have them like, instead of indicating with a sit for dope or a down for explosives, is that possible? I would not do that. Right, uh, right, right. I, I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to say that anything's possible, but here's what you're going to find is that if you teach a dog to sit on odor, usually on low odors they lay down because they're trying to get as close to the source as they can. Mm, gotcha. So if you taught a dog to lay down for explosive odor and the dog lays down uh, a pressure plate or something. And you find, and you, well, what well, think about no, just think about it. so let's say you did that. You you the dog is trained to sit on drugs and to lay down on uh, explosives, but it's a low hide and he lays down and it turns out to be marijuana and you just clear the whole building and, and put a bunch of people out of, <laughs> out of work for a while because you thought it was a bomb. I got what you're saying, but just, okay. You know, yeah, in, yeah. in the, in the worst case scenario, what happens if, you know, well, my dog, he's supposed to do this when he smells drugs, but he did the opposite and now I got you killed. <laughs> right. <laughs> you got you blown up, right? That's, that's just just a, just bad business all the way around. I, I would uh, I would I would make a drug dog a drug dog and a bomb dog a bomb dog. 
or explosives dog, an explosive dog. Right, right. I wouldn't, I wouldn't cross train my, any, anything's possible. Once you teach dogs anomaly odors, you know, it's very easy to add odors. Right. That's, I guess that was more it's, my question. If it was physically possible. Yeah. It's, it's, oh yeah. You could teach them. Yeah. They, they could, yeah, absolutely. It's, it's all odor. And you're just, remember, you're pairing an odor with a reward. And once you do that, then that's going to be your, that's why you don't want to talk a dog into sitting on your peanut butter sandwich, right? Right. Because the same thing will happen. Now you got a peanut butter detector dog and it's not. But I guess it'll always be full. It's, <laughs> it doesn't make many good cases. <laughs> That's one thing that I, I guess a lot of people that aren't involved in this, the, this community don't understand is like the legal aspect of, of all of that, you know, especially working with police dogs specifically, you know, it's, it's like, it's, it's a very fine line. And, and uh, have you dealt with any challenges um, with that side of the house um, as a trainer or no, in not, the- not in a long time. You know, I've been out of, I left, I've been out of policing since 2011. So it's, it's been a while for me. I've, I've not had any challenges as far as that goes, but you know, all these reputable seminars that go to always have case law and you know, there's, you just got to keep up with what, what you can and can't do. It's no different than what changes every year for a police officer period. You know, right. we have legal updates every year in, in training uh, and you, you just got to keep up with what you can do and what you can't do, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's very important. Have you ever done any kind of cadaver work personally? No, I've helped some local uh, search and rescue agencies with their cadaver work, but I've never handled one myself personally. I mean, odor is odor as far as I'm concerned. Right. Uh, you know, there, there's different needs with different programs, you know, search and rescue. Uh, some of those dogs want to air scent and not, tra- you know, trail on the ground. They don't want to track off the ground. They want to do air scenting. You know, there's just, you just look at what the need is and try to make out a, a plan to try to help them meet their goals. Right. There's a there's a nice young lady here named Paige Kolak here in Kentucky who does a really good job with her dogs in search and rescue. I've helped her a couple of times. Smart smart lady and not has a good dog IQ. Yeah, yeah. There's a pretty big SAR community here in the mountains as well. And oh, I bet. Yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, you know, places like Kentucky and it's, uh, they, it's a lot of training for for little work out there. You get a lot of training and a lot of work. Yeah. Yeah. They're pretty high speed. The stuff that these guys are doing. And I mean, they gotta be, I mean, it's just the, just the way it works out here, you know, but, uh, absolutely. Let's talk a little bit. Um, if you, if you want to, um, do you want to talk about what you and, and, uh, Howard are, uh, are trying to put together and maybe put the, put some info out on that. We don't have to, I just figured you'd want to plug, talk about that a little. Oh, that's, that's very kind of you. Yeah. I mean, Howard and I have talked a, uh, a few times. We actually, recorded some podcasts last year, uh, maybe even a little longer than that. But we, we had trouble with editing and our time and Howard was still working, you know, uh, teaching and, and, and doing the dog work and my company here in a little, was just off, off the wall busy and we just weren't, weren't able to sit down and make it happen. So we've recommitted to that and we've actually moved forward with a couple of things. So hopefully we're going to start that podcast and, uh, it's going to be called a purpose-driven dog, and we're just going to talk to people about the purpose they use their dogs for, you know, uh, and just try to get out good information and, and have some great conversations with some really good friends of ours. Yeah, that's no, awesome. I'm looking forward to it. I, uh, you know, you guys are the guys that know pretty much everybody that's you know involved in this, and uh, you know, can't wait to hear some of the stories that come out of there. But uh, so uh, how do people find you? Do you have social media? Does your companies uh, have 
uh, social media or websites? Do you want to kind of shout that out and let everybody know where they can? Yeah, we have a couple of different places. We have our, our main pet dog company. It's called Double H Canine Training Academy. And we have Facebook and Instagram. Uh, and it's located in Louisville. We do all our pet dogs through that company. And then we have another company called the Working Dog Depot, which does all of our working dog sites for bite work, dog sports, protection dogs, and detection dogs. And we raise shepherds and labs. And uh, it's, it's really, a, a, we really put a lot of focus into it as of January 1. And that side's really, really growing fast. So it's, it's kind of cool to see. Oh, and again, awesome. we have Facebook, Instagram, all that good stuff. Website coming out it's called theworkingdogdepot.com. Nice. No, Got a awesome. photo shoot for it Tuesday, I think. So. <laughs> Sweet. I'm jealous. I wish yeah. I was. I wish I was close to closer. But um, well, you always have an open invite. If you're ever in our area, you know, give us a call. Come by and hang out with us. Yeah, absolutely. I'd, I'd love that. We need to bring some. We have some nice bourbon again, and uh, maybe we'll make that happen. But uh, this was the first one in a while, so um, try to keep it under an hour. But uh, is there any anything else you'd like to say before we punch out here? No, just you know, it, just I think the biggest thing people need to remember is you need to get out there and have fun with your dog. Uh, whether you're, you know, if you're not in the law enforcement arena, you can learn so much from so many great trainers out there that not necessarily have a law enforcement or military background. Uh, these guys have worked really hard to become really good at what they do and girls. And, uh, there's a lot of different things you can do with your dogs from working dog sports, to, you know, protection stuff and, and agility. You just need to be out there having a good time with your dog and don't take yourself too seriously. Amen, man. That's good advice. That's very good advice. So, well, it affects your dog. Yeah. That's, if you're not, if you're not having fun, your dog's not having fun. So you need to remember to have fun. Absolutely. I agree. I agree. All right, brother. Well, it was good having you on and uh, you guys stay safe, take care, and we'll see you the next time we see you. Thanks a lot. I really appreciate you having me on, man. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for tuning in to the Dogs of War.